Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we talk about the legal and business issues behind the glitz and glam of Hollywood. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, pop culture enthusiast, founder of Lola Media. I'm here to represent you, the audience, because I don't know much about the legal stuff, but that's why we have Paul here to get everything in the background, what's going on behind the scenes. And we're so excited for episode five, where in this episode, we get to talk about copyright infringements when it comes to music and artists. In this case, specifically, Dua Lipa getting sued for her song Levitating, which we'll get to later. Sued by two bands. By two bands. And then there's also just a bunch of like, you know, lawsuits happening around music and artists. But before we get to that, we got a couple things we want to run through. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening in entertainment this week. Um, But first, let's start off with what we talked about last week, Paul. We talked about the MLB lockout and it's over. Woohoo. Baseball's back. What did you think was going to happen? Not to oversimplify things, but I think I told you if you were representing one side and I was representing the other, we would probably just meet in the middle on every issue and just get it done in a day because the worst case scenario would be to actually lose games, you alienate fans. And so not that we had a crystal ball, but that is what happened. I think it was Thursday this week, MLB and the players decided to ratify their new five-year CBA. And they're going to play a full season and awesome result for everyone because they get to maximize their revenue and the players and owners feel like they fully vetted their positions and, you know, reached a valid compromise for the next five years. That's great news. I'm sure it's extremely great, not only for the players, but for the audience themselves who are who are baseball fans who get to watch. But I do think that we should be keeping tabs, Paul, on whether you're right or whether you're wrong. And then maybe down or the road. Or definitely whether I'm right. I don't know <laughs> if we need to note on it if I'm ever wrong. We should I mean, open if- our own betting pool on whether Paul is going to be right and place bets on it and then become an entire gambling company, which I'm sure, luckily for us, we've got a lawyer here to make sure that we're not doing anything illegal. Uh, if you have a gambling problem, there are reasons resources don't gamble if you're addicted to it and you can only do it in states where it's legal this is uh, this is not legal advice <laughs> but yeah no mlb's back they had a new five-year deal higher salary minimums better pay for younger players they expanded the playoffs so now almost half the teams are going to make the playoffs so it'll be really exciting and you know that's great for everyone speaking of someone who had a kind of a a rough incident. Why don't you uh, tell us what happened yeah. down in the ATL? Our, our man, Ryan Coogler, the director of Black Panther, of course, one of the biggest, not only movies, but Marvel movies that just exploded into multiple new audiences that cared about this movie. They're now working on Black Panther 2, which is going to be super interesting to see how they do that. But Wakanda forever. Wakanda forever. And love to our boy, Chadwick Boseman. But Ryan Coogler was arrested in Atlanta under the suspicion of robbing a Bank of America. And this is what happened. He went, obviously, COVID, mask on, sunglasses on. He's a famous dude. He rolls up into a Bank of America. He goes to the teller. He gives uh, his uh, withdrawal slip. He wants to take out $12,000 in cash. And he wrote a note to the teller saying, count it discreetly because, yeah, 12K is a lot of money. You don't want anyone, like, looking to see What's all this cash happening over here? This person called her manager and under the suspicion that she was being robbed and they had him arrested and his team outside the Bank of America arrested because they thought he was robbing him, which just there's so many ridiculous things about this whole thing. Like 
I don't understand, Paul, one, how do you rob a bank if you give a withdrawal slip with like a nice note to say count discreetly? I have no idea how you rob a bank of your own money. That seems to me a little bit of a stretch. Maybe she thought he was impersonating someone that he wasn't. But yeah, it, it's a little... You'd think she would have asked for his ID and that's it. Yeah, agreed. Just ridiculous. And maybe like, hey, can you lower your mask? I could ask you at the airports. Yeah, ex exactly. I mean, dude, it's just a, it's just a continues to be a ridiculous thing. But here's, here's the other thing. I mean, Kugler did say to Variety, the situation never should have happened. However, Bank of America worked with me and addressed it to my satisfaction, and we have moved on. I have no idea what that could possibly mean. Like, could he sue Bank of America in this case? Listen, one thing I tell my clients about America is you can sue anyone for anything. That doesn't mean you're necessarily going to win, but you can definitely sue. And I mean, that's a little bit flippant, but it is, I'm sure he could maybe gin up a cause of action, but it's not going to happen. I mean, he's made statements that he's satisfied with how it was resolved. It was all misunderstanding, but it's not a great look. I mean, his friends were in a car. I don't know if the car was running or not, but that's you know, maybe adds to the facts and they were all arrested. I would be pissed if I were him. Dude. It's his own money. Yeah. He's allowed to withdraw. I mean, you know, I'm not saying everyone's withdrawing 12000 in cash. No. But, uh, you know, maybe he had to go to Magic City or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, People I mean, look, I'm trying to think. What, to what do you need 12 k cash for? Hey, he is directing a movie. He could need it for petty cash, for entertaining, for tipping people. Who knows why? Yeah, he but you would think out. Marvel would be picking up the tab for all this. This is also like, true. He probably has some sort of business development account. But well, the other thing here is that you also mentioned a few episodes ago. We talked about how you go to certain cities because of tax credits. Where Black Panther two, one of the biggest movies being in, in production right now, is being recorded in Atlanta because of tax credits, right? Yeah, I mean, Atlanta's a great city. This is not a negative thing about Atlanta. I, I love Atlanta. I spent a lot of time there, but they have their tax credit has sort of put them on the map as far as production. I mean, a lot of Marvel movies are filmed there. I know the Avengers 3 and 4 and now Black Panther 2. You know, the tax credit has changed the game for Atlanta. Yeah, well, unfortunate situation. Hopefully he's okay and he's not too pissed. I bank with Bank of America, so I'm a little disappointed in, in Bank of America. You know, that sucks. But you know what else sucks? I mean, just in general, another situation happening in court right now. We got Jesse Smollett, the actor from Empire. If anyone watched the show with Terrence Howard about the record label, fictional record label icon, whatever, Jesse Smollett was one of the actors in it. He was accused of hoaxing a hate crime, which he now was sentenced to 30 months of felony probation. Can you run us through what happened there? Yeah, I mean, if, for anyone that doesn't know, I feel like this was a pretty big story when it happened. So he was sentenced this week to 30 months probation and 150 days in jail, and he has to pay like 150 grand in restitution and fines for basically paying two brothers to wear MAGA hats and throw bleach on him and try to like beat him up. He claimed he was a victim of a hate crime because he's black and gay. And then the city of Chicago spent 1,500 hours, thousands of, of dollars in overtime researching this, and they found out that it was all manufactured. He paid the brothers to do this because I think he wanted to create publicity and renegotiate his contract. Dude. And I mean, it's kind of comical in a way. Uh, obviously, it's, it's sad where anyone has to do jail time, but it is it's a strange fact pattern, to say the least. And this, the mayor is, was pissed, right? Because it makes her cops look like they're wasting resources. There's better things that they could be spending their time on. And the judge said, hey, you're an arrogant, narcissistic guy. You still haven't admitted that you did this. Right. You've been found guilty. 
And even as he was sentenced, he said he was innocent. And then he added that he wasn't suicidal. So he, he said, quote, Your Honor, I respect you and I respect the jury, but I did not do this. The actor told the judge before turning to the court, I am not suicidal. And if anything happens to me when I go in there, I did not do it myself. And you must all know that. That's some like Jeffrey Epstein type shit right there. I mean, we could really, if there's an appetite for it, fans let us know. We could do an episode on on this whole sham, shenanigan, whatever you want to call it, but let's let's leave it at that. He's he's got five months in jail. We'll leave it at that. Let's move on. Last part of the news this week. NBC terminates content sharing deal with Hulu. In this case, NBC has taken some of their big shows off of Hulu to make sure that it's not available the next day after air. One of the reasons being they're focused on Peacock streaming, their streaming service. The Comcast CEO, which owns Comcast, who owns NBC, the CEO said in a recent earnings call that the issue with subscriber growth for Peacock is because NBCU's best shows are not on Peacock. And now they've pulled Saturday Night Live, The Voice, and American Auto, which I've never heard of, which will no longer be on Hulu uh, the day after they air. What's happening here? This seems to go back into our whole trend around streaming wars. They're leaving some content on. They're pulling some content off. I mean, it's getting pretty confusing on where you find your shows these days. Yeah, I know. It is super confusing. Uh, You're not alone. But basically, this is a theme, as you've said. We've been talking about it since Jump Street. Comcast owns NBC, and they were one of the initial owners of Hulu. Hulu was a joint venture between Disney, Comcast, Fox, and a private equity Back in the day when streaming was all experimental, they wanted to be invested in it to see maybe this thing has legs and they didn't want to miss out. And now that everyone knows that streaming is potentially the wave of the future, or at least here to stay, Comcast has its own platform, Peacock. They want all their focus to be on Peacock and not on Hulu. So they're going to keep some shows on Hulu. There's probably different license agreements at play, but their biggest shows are no longer going to be available the next day. And if you think about it, People that can't watch something live, they really want to see it recently before it gets talked about before their spoilers. So something like SNL, maybe you're not up super late on a Saturday, but you'll watch it on Sunday. If you can't get it on Hulu, then maybe you're more likely to sign up for Peacock. Yeah, man, this streaming more thing is, um, I mean, half the time I'm, I want to watch these shows and I'm looking on my Apple TV to see where they are. I have a subscription now to all this stuff. I only did Peacock, I think. I think because Yellowstone was on it, but now I forget whether it's on Paramount or on Peacock. But one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, this is not the first time that Hulu's lost big shows like this. They previously lost Seinfeld to Netflix and they lost South Park to HBO Max. So it's just, it feels like drafting players. You're just picking, grabbing whoever gets the best deal. They go to the different team. But Hulu is focused on making their own original content now. I don't know if you're watching The Dropout, but it's fantastic, and that's on Hulu. Yeah, no, that's the name of the game now. It's like original content is is really how these platforms are going to maintain their user bases and grow their user bases. So licensing is great if you can do it, but now that everyone's got their own platform that they want to own and control, there's going to be a bidding, more of a bidding war for content and more original productions. So you know, it remains to be seen how this shakes out, but Hulu's got a lot of great content. And so, yes, it's, it's probably going to hurt, but, you know, I don't think Hulu's going to collapse as a result. Paul, let's get into our main topic of this week, Dua Lipa being sued not once but twice for her song levitating if you wanna run away with me i know i 
Paul, I was thinking maybe we could sing the song together, but I, you know those first few lyrics are pretty tough. Well, I was thinking maybe Dua could call me. Um, <laughs> she should. You know, but yes. this is this is a absolute should. moment better for call better call Paul. Call Paul. Absolutely. Yeah. She's being sued twice, which is, uh, I mean, good for legal business, but bad for her. Let's get into like what's actually happening here. So I'll just do a quick. The two main suits that are happening is that she's being sued by Florida reggae band for allegedly stealing Levitating, which is a huge song, peaked at number two on the Billboard charts, was on it for 41 weeks. I mean, I'm still listening to that song. 445 million streams on Spotify. Florida reggae band Article Sound System has filed a copyright infringement lawsuit against her, saying they ripped off their song, a 2017 track, Live Your Life. Before we get into the second suit... What's happening here? Like, just explain to us how this even comes up in the first place. You'd think that her legal team would have set this up. How do you, how do you like copyright infringe a song? It's a great question. So think of music copyright as Congress and others thought that it was, we want to encourage creative expression. So we create copyright to give people an incentive to create so they can protect their content and therefore monetize it. And so if you can't protect content, then there's less incentive to make content. So we want people in the studio coming up with creative works, writing novels, creating characters. So that's something we want to encourage. So we want to let people monetize them. However, at the same time, you don't want to overprotect because then you stifle creativity. So while we have an alphabet, you can't copyright every letter and you can't copyright individual words. And just like music, there are building blocks of music, which are notes and rhythms and chords and progressions. And so those building blocks of music are not copyrightable, but what is copyrightable is an original expression. Every song has two copyrights. It has the musical composition, which is the notes, the lyrics, the melody, and then the actual sound recording, which is when you go to the studio or you're in you know, GarageBand or whatever, and you actually play the song that's recorded, whether it's on MIDI or a WAV file or MP3 or on a disc, that is also copyrighted. There's two copyrights in play, and when there's a copyright infringement case, it's someone claiming that they had an original copyrighted work, which was accessed and copied in the secondary work, right? So it's very fact-intensive to figure out whether something is, is an infringement, but one of the first things you have to prove is that the song that you made, which you're alleging was plagiarized, was heard by the person who released the second song. And the other thing you have to prove is that it's substantially similar, so that a unique part of that song, which is identifiable and sort of important to that song, was copied or very similar to the point where they basically, they sound the same, they have the same note structure, they have the same lyrics. So there isn't an actual bright line test. It's something that musicologists and juries and judges have to look at very closely. If you hear it and it sounds right. the same and then you dig into it a little bit further and you compare them uh, segment by segment, note by note, and you can see the similarities, that's, that's infringement. Well, it's interesting. I mean, for those who don't know, I originally moved to New York to be a songwriter. I wanted to get into publishing. I wanted to write songs for other people. A lot of the chord progressions are the same. People take influences from other folks. Like It is not easy. I mean, if you listen to any Taylor Swift song, a lot of the chord progressions are very, very much similar. It's just the way that it's delivered is different. And I think this one's interesting because I did listen to Live Your Life on YouTube. And, you know, if we play this track. Well, after the lawsuit, right? It's not like you were listening. No, to it no. Well, it's funny because, like, I listened to it after the lawsuit. I listened to it. It does sound like the same melody.
I went on YouTube and I looked at the, the comments and the comments are hilarious because it's like people are now one, the song blew up on Live Your Life blew up on YouTube because everyone was coming there to see whether the song was similar. And the top YouTube comments, I have to say, I, I wrote these down because they're super funny. One was the first one was such a good flow on the song kind of feels like I'm levitating. Wow, this song is so good. I hope no one gets ripped off. After listening to this song, I felt like running away with someone who knows about a certain galaxy far away, which is, you know, pretty funny. YouTube comments are always the best most of the time, but it is interesting. In this case, the songwriters are suing Warner Brothers along with Dua Lipa, and they're asking for profits and damages, and that's the first lawsuit, and it's tough, man. I mean, I think obviously when a song is so popular, yeah, like, you want to get paid as well if you think that something was stolen for you. Do you think a lot of times that this is someone who wrote a song and they never got that famous and they hear the song and they're like, oh, that's clearly taken inspiration for me. Let's see if we can get some money. Like if levitating wasn't as big, I don't think there would be any lawsuits here. Well, I mean, clearly as a practical matter, you're not going to sue something where there's no money in it, there right? So it costs money to file lawsuits. And if someone steals your song and then it becomes like you said like the billboard number one song half a million streams or 440 million streams half a million views that's uh you know big dollars and and we can do another episode on how streaming royalties and and youtube royalties are sort of calculated but let's suffice it to say that levitating made a lot of money and so when it makes a lot of money that means when you file your lawsuit your potential damages are bigger which means anytime you're deciding whether to sue you have to factor your likelihood of winning times the amount that you would win and cost-benefit analysis and how much it's going to cost you to actually file the suit. And so if you look at one of the top you know, songs that's potentially making 10 or $20 million in revenue and you think you could maybe get half of that and you have a 10% chance of getting it, then that's kind of the analysis, right? You have to evaluate the strength of your case as, as well as the likelihood or, or the amount that you would win if you're successful. And so... She's a she's got a big target because she's an international pop star who has, you know, hit songs and in this case there's some actual similarities. I mean, we don't know whether the, she accessed the song, but in this day and age where everything is available on the internet, you know, they had their song on SoundCloud. They said it was on a couple streaming services. I don't know that it still is. It's hard to say that she had no idea the song existed. Well, yeah. I mean, what's interesting is also why are we seeing a lot more of these lawsuits that are happening now? You had mentioned a great point to me earlier on something that we we're probably all aware with, but like Blurred Lines by Robin Thicke and, and Pharrell was sued by Marvin Gaye's team for Gotta Give You Up in a big copyright lawsuit that Marvin Gaye won. Can you tell us like how that set up everything for why we're seeing more of these lawsuits now? So I think, I mean, that may have been an inflection point in these lawsuits. So I mean, there's a couple factors at play, but let's say for the past decade plus, music has become a lot more profitable because the growth of streaming. Music was about concerts and selling records and albums, and then sort of record sales and album sales fell off a cliff, and music was being pirated, and now streaming platforms have grown to be a significant way to monetize music with copyright permission. The dollars are getting bigger, and they've been getting bigger, sort of 6 7 8% cumulative annual growth rate for the past decade. So the dollars are bigger. And then the Blurred Lines case was an expansion of what people thought could be copyrightable because the case was basically about the vibe of the song being unique. And Marvin Gaye's estate was able to win in a case that in the past, 
most people would have thought would not have been a winning case. And so, yeah, and the, the verdict was huge. I think it was $5 million or, or maybe more and probably 50% of profits going forward. You know, plaintiff's attorneys are savvy. You know, they know where there's dollars to be made. And if there's a number one song and you can find someone that has something very similar, why not file a claim? And I, if you saw the article complaint, it was the most bare bones complaint I've ever seen. It was like three pages long, basically saying, hey, we made this song in 2017. She had this number one song a couple of years later. They sound the same. And that was basically it. They didn't really get into a lot of detail, but that may be something that they would discuss at later points of the litigation. And certainly the song sounds similar enough, I think, for someone to take it seriously. But the second prong of that, there's the first prong being access, the second prong being substantial similarity, was hard to prove because you have to prove that the element is unique and that it's copyrighted and that it was important to the song. So it was just a tough test. And a lot of times, and we'll discuss this later in the case of Katy Perry, reasonable minds can differ about it. So Katy Perry lost it trial, but then one on appeal right. saying that what was similar wasn't unique. So before we get into the Katy Perry thing, I want to bring up the actual, the second suit against Dua Lipa, which is she's being sued a second time for the same song. Um, she's being sued by songwriters L. Russell Brown and Sandy Linzer, who accused her of stealing their 1979 song, Wiggle and Giggle All Night. I was walking down the street when I saw the handsome soldier boy winkle, winkle, winking at me. And their 1980 song, Don Diablo. If you listen to Wiggle and Giggle, and you listen to Don Diablo, you can make your own assessment whether it's the delivery of the lyrics in this case are the same, because they do sound somewhat similar. It's like a very small amount where you're like, oh, interesting, did they take inspiration from this? Um, and again, the suit is against Dua Lipa, uh, Warner Music Group, and collaborator DaBaby in this case, and the attorneys claimed, quote, the signature melody is the most listened to and recognizable part of the infringing works and plays a crucial role in their popularity. So it's uh, they're saying the signature melody, which plays before Dua Lipa sings the first verse, is copied from a similar portion of these two tracks. That seems a little bit more in detail versus the last one. Yeah, this, the second lawsuit has a much more detailed, as you said, and, and fulsome complaint. They inserted in their complaint is that Dua Lipa said in some press interviews that she, I mean, it's kind of a generic statement, but still maybe not the greatest thing in hindsight, that she had listened to a lot of other stuff for inspiration for her album Future Nostalgia. And so, listen, if you if you play them side by side, it does sound, although the words are different, the, the rappy part of the song yeah. is so similar. And that was kind of what led to it becoming viral and sort of perfect for TikTok because it's like yeah. five, 10 seconds. So it's not a huge amount of time that's being copied, but it is kind of the most integral, important part of the song that made it catchy. Right. So I think that case also has legs. I mean, we'll, we'll see where it goes, but that one was filed in... Manhattan federal court. The other case we talked about before was in California federal court. So, you know, we'll see, but that rappy part of it is, yeah. is unique. If you want exactly. I don't know. I don't know the words, but I love the song. Does it matter where you file the suit, California versus Manhattan? Uh, sure. I mean, that's Basically, you can file the suit where there's jurisdiction, and Warner has, I think, their principal office 
in California, but they also have an office in New York. So there's jurisdiction in both those places because it's a violation of the federal copyright statute. There's jurisdiction in federal court and the damages are big. So normally there's a, there's a small hurdle in damages. You have to be over like 75,000 or something to get into federal court. So this jurisdiction is proper. Federal court is very organized. Some people say state court is more like the wild, wild west. Federal court is, is not. And Manhattan and Los Angeles, California, I mean, they're very sort of like sophisticated judges. They handle entertainment type cases all the time. Yeah. And before we get to the other artists that are going through similar things, some are in court right now. Who pays the bills here? Is it the record label? Is it come out of Dua Lipa's pocket? Is it the publishing team? What I'm kind of blown away against is that Dua Lipa has an entire team. Like there's the label, there's the publisher. Like, Do they not prepare for this stuff ahead of time? Or they're just like, okay, hopefully we get away with this. Um, do they not check on these things beforehand? And if they lose, who ends up paying? I would find it unlikely if any label in this day and age, a major label or publisher willingly disregarded potential infringement before they released a hit song. If you're going to invest that much in an artist like Dua Lipa, you're probably going to do some amount of diligence or at least have a contract with the artist that says you represent and warrant that this work is original to you and that you didn't steal it from anybody else and that if anyone contributed, that you got their permission, right? So that's standard 101 in every contract, right? That the work is original. That being said, if there's a case and something you didn't anticipate or someone breached their contract and they did steal something and they they didn't disclose it, then you could be in this situation. So, I mean, there's literally millions of songs and how could you ever know every song that's ever been made? Right. So in, in the ClearCut case, where like a textbook case where someone said, I don't know, I mean, I'm a big Eminem fan and I remember when I was in high school, there was a song where he said, I listen to your demo tape and act like I don't like it. Six months later, you hear your lyrics on my shit. In the music industry, inspiration and, you know, songs are kind of like, it's very common for one song to inspire another and people collaborate and sometimes credit's given, sometimes it isn't. So this is something that's sort of part of the creative process in general. So it's not like every song is an original work. There's literally millions of songs. Some songs sound the same, you know, some components of songs are common across songs, right? Like, for example, the Charleston sort of rhythm, yeah. which is in Levitating. So, so two songs can sound the same without it being infringement. Right. So it's a very hard thing to research. But to answer your question, if you were wrong and you sued and you lost, then it would go, like, the profits would be mostly retained by the label. The label would have to pay their share. The artist would pay their share. If you have insurance, the insurance company, if it's covered, would probably have oh, to wow. step in and kick in some money. So all the entities that profit from the song or if an insurer is there to sort of cover liability they all have to pay pro rata well especially in a day and age where like how many songs are we hearing now that are sampled from songs that we grew up on a lot of pop songs a lot of hip-hop songs sample other major songs that were popular maybe a decade ago or two decades ago i'm assuming then that's just all hey you get your credits for creating that song you get paid there's no infringement because you you are getting your share of this song, I would assume. Exactly. So basically, infringement is the unauthorized use of a copyrighted work, right? So that's work without using work without permission. If you have a license, so let's say you sample, you get permission, you clear it, or you license a work to make an inspired work or to take 30 seconds of one song and put it in your song, by definition, you're getting permission. As long as you comply with the terms of that license, whether that's credit 
profit sharing, approval rights, then you're not going to be in an infringement case. And that's why a big part of what I do and what we recommend our clients do is to clear things in advance, right? Get the licenses, get the permission. If there's ever a gray area, you want to be on the right side of that because what you don't know is whether a song is going to be a hit. So if you can clear something up front for 15 grand and then your song becomes an international hit, that's way better than having to pay half of your royalties to someone and after the fact. So, you know, I advise to get in the practice of clearing things, but it's not necessarily something that everyone takes the time to do. Right. And then the other thing is clearances, sometimes those licenses can be very narrow. Like you can carve out paid media or worldwide marketing, or maybe just be for a period of years or one year. So music licensing is a huge part of the business. These cases are when the music licensing was either exceeded or not obtained. Well, let's talk about Katy Perry, because Katy Perry won a case recently. Well, so technically, technically, she lost the case, and then she appealed, and on appeal, got it. the verdict was overturned, and then the appellate judge took her side. So to give a bit of context, she had this hit song back in the day, I mean, back in the day, like six, seven years ago, Dark Horse, great song. In 2014, Christian rapper Marcus Gray, who goes by Flame, claimed that Perry's hit song, Dark Horse, was similar to his song, Joyful Noise. In 2019, according to Variety, an L.A. jury found Perry liable for infringement, but the verdict was overturned a year ago when the judge ruled that the eight-note ostinato that Perry allegedly copied lacked the quantum of originality to warrant copyright protection. Then Marcus Gray appealed that, and you're saying that Katy Perry won the appeal. Yeah, this week, I believe she the appellate victory that she had before was sustained. So Flame won at trial. Marcus Gray, Flame, won at trial. He was awarded, I think, nearly $3 million in damages. Damn. Katy Perry appealed, uh, won on appeal, and then Flame appealed again, and Katy Perry won on appeal. Wow. This just shows you how complicated it can be because the jury thought, you know, listening to the, I think it was eight notes in Joyful Noise, and the same eight notes or sim very similar eight notes in Dark Horse. And if you like play them side by side or if you superimpose them onto each other, there is similarity there. You can't argue that there isn't. But what the appellate court said is that, okay, yeah, there's similarity here, but these are basic building blocks of a song. It's not unique. And this element would be in a lot of other songs. And if we allowed Marcus Gray to claim protection over this, then we would hamper the creative process, right? Because basically that's closer to a building block than a unique work. It's it's like right. a word or a couple right. of words. As I said, you can't copyright the alphabet. You can't copyright the right. or right. You know, Paul. <laughs> Although I tried. It doesn't work. I tried too, no. Paul. I tried to copyright your name before we started this podcast. It didn't work. No, no, you can't do that. So Katy Perry won and she doesn't have to pay and it's it's great even though... To the casual fan, you could say, hey, this sounds the same. And I think that's one of the things about these cases, whether you win or lose doesn't necessarily, it's not all about how similar they sound. And so that's why I think a lot of times if you're listening to two songs side by side, as in the case of Levitating, you're like, okay, this sounds the same. This must be infringement. And that's not necessarily the case because it's, it's much deeper. In fact, in the case of Levitating, the Outcast song from 1998, I'm so drawing a blank on So Fresh and So Clean? Maybe. Uh, no, not so fresh and so clean. It's it's very similar to both Levitating and Live Your Life. You know, before we get into a funny suit that I, I mean, I personally find the whole thing being funny and we'll get to it on Vanilla Ice and Queen. How much does this shit cost, man? Because 
for the Katy Perry thing that started in 2014, it's 2022 now. I mean, like what the like that just sounds so fucking expensive from like a legal standpoint. I mean, I know you probably don't know the exact number, but how much does that bill end up costing over the course of, in this case, eight years? That's a great question. If you're talking about litigation and it was actually went to trial and then which which this did, you know, I have no idea. But let's be clear in the eight year. It, yes, it, it did play out for a while. Maybe it was six years. A lot of that was just waiting. Yeah. Right. Because it's you're waiting for the appeal to be heard. Then the appeals heard. Then you appeal again. So the appellate process, it's not like you're constantly actively litigating through that eight year period. So there are some periods where like you're just kind of waiting. But sure, I mean, the bills for litigation can be very high, which is one of the reasons why we advise people to clear things in advance. Because right. even if you win your case, you still, you know, I mean, in certain cases, this is another area of complexity. If you can prove that someone willfully infringed your music, you can also, under certain circumstances, get your attorney's fees covered. Right. So okay. in addition to damages, they have to pay you for your legal fees. That's a tricky scenario. But, you know, it makes sense because if someone did willfully infringe your work and they made all this money off of it, why should you have to come out of pocket just to be made whole? And a lot of these end up being settled, right? That's the other thing. So the ones we talk about in these cases are kind of the rare exceptions. Normally things are licensed or even if there is a dispute, it's settled or worked out, which Ed Sheeran mentions. He's like, hey, this process happens all the time. Right. If someone brings something to my attention in the creative process, I always give credit. I try to clear stuff. So nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100, I mean, that's really what happens. It's it's the rare instances where things go this far. Yeah, because Ed Sheeran right now is in court for Shape of You um, that he was a writer on. And Ed Sheeran, great guy, great performer, songwriter, works on a lot of songs, you know, behind the scenes. You know, he did a big Justin Bieber song that he wrote one of the, he wrote the lyrics for. But in this case, he's being sued for Shape of You. And he's basically saying that, like, look, if I take inspiration from people and I feel like I'm doing something, I give them credit. In this case, I don't think this is the case. And that's a live live suit that's happening now. We could cover it later on to see what happens with it. But, you know, it seems like the person here who sidestepped all of this shit and didn't have to go through all this major hassle is our boy Vanilla Ice. With the song Ice Ice Baby, which, you know, and I would love to play the clip of him actually comparing the melodies of Ice Ice Baby in Queens Under Pressure, where he goes, dun 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 dun, and then he says, That's the way theirs goes. Ours goes ding 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 ding. That little bitty change. It's not the same. But according to something that I read, Vanilla Ice reportedly paid $4 million to Queen to purchase the publishing rights to Under Pressure after the original songwriters filed a lawsuit for his illegal use of the sample. Robert Van Winkle, which I didn't know was Vanilla Ice's legal name, decided to completely buy the song instead of paying ongoing royalties. But that was like a while back. I mean, $4 million sounds like a shit ton of money, but at the time with CD sales being so big and album sales being so big, it seemed to be the right move. So he initially, I believe, was sued. He thought he did not get the clearance initially, he thought the sounds were different because he he changed one of the notes, but he lost the trial. And then I think, you know, as part of the resolution, he did the buyout of the publishing. But 
Listen, that was the biggest song of his career, probably his only hit. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know how much he made, but four million seems Paul, like. Don't forget the major hit in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles: oh, yeah. Return T of the Go Ooze. Ninja, Go, Go Ninja, Go. That, I used to blast that yeah. shit. I was in probably second grade. Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go. Thought that movie was amazing, by the way. When I look back on it, it's a terrible movie, but that song that was scary. <laughs> yeah. That I re that part of the movie was very scary. <laughs> yeah, when Vanilla Ice starts dancing and there's a bunch of turtles like dancing with them, and suddenly you got the Super Shredder. Well, isn't that where like Shredder comes comes out? Too? Super Shredder. It's not even Shredder. Shredder takes the ooze, yeah. becomes Super Shredder. Which, by the way, you and I should watch that movie uh, now as adults. Have a couple beers, watch it. Um, but look, we could talk about music royalties all day. You had mentioned that we should do a deep dive on the structure of music royalties which would be an amazing episode on its own. But I would love to conclude this episode with what are Paul's tips here? You know, if you're better, if you're going to better call Paul, Paul's got some tips for you around how not to get sued or to avoid this type of stuff. Paul, what are your tips here? Okay, so uh, like I said, this is uh, for entertainment purposes only <laughs> and not legal advice. But what I would say is uh, when in doubt, absolutely clear things, get the permissions from whoever owns the work because you're better off having predictability than taking this sort of risk. Uh, and if there's areas where, you know, you don't, you're not sure, um, you know, have a musicologist do the research, you know, have them, these people who understand compositions and chord progressions and structure and music and lyrics, the people that are going to sort of be deciding these cases as expert witnesses, have them research and see is there anything else out there that could potentially be a claim. Then there's also technology, things like Shazam, which you can use, which analyze algorithms, which analyze spectrographs and can sort of identify similar spectrographs. And then the last sort of thing I would recommend is for to have insurance. Errors and omissions insurance is something that you know, every studio, every label is going to require, and it may be pricey depending on the artist and the source of music. For example, right. urban hip hop music, there's a lot of sampling. It's not always cleared. So, you know, insurance is probably going to be more expensive. And, you know, insurance basically exists to smooth out risks, but insurance companies end up being profitable. So, yeah, you may end up paying a little bit more in the long run, but you're going to protect yourself from that one in a million lawsuit that could bankrupt your company. Well, Paul, it seems that Dua Lipa could use a little Paul Sarker on her side right now. Hopefully things work out for her. I'm a big fan of hers. She's killing it right now. She's reintroduced her dance that everyone made fun of her for. Now she's doing that on main stages, open up Madison Square Garden. It's all over TikTok. Fans love Dua Lipa. Um, and we'll keep an eye on all this copyright stuff. But well, that's an that's the other interesting angle. It's like, you know, article, if I did steal your song, I mean, your song didn't make really any money. And so... Is it fair that if they win that they should get, you know, half of what she made? Because I don't know. I mean, that's a topic for another day. But yeah, do it. Give me a call. <laughs> yeah. Do it. But give Paul Sarker a call. That's our show for this week, folks. Paul, uh, thanks as always. I love doing this with you. And dude, you just continue to educate us on this stuff. Thanks, Mesh. Thanks for listening, everyone. Make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. And we'll be back next week. This episode is edited and produced by Valentino Rivera, Marco Seiler Gonzalez, with assistant producer Justin Sanchez and assistant research producer Haas Nasser. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.